And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. A very topsy-turvy globe tonight, as we are in the middle of, what would you call this? Uh, I was discussing this afternoon with anthropologist Dr. Richard Grossinger the kind of context of where we are, because he's an anthropologist, and tomorrow night, Richard will be my guest, and we're going to be talking about big picture stuff, where we are as a planetary civilization. We're going through something, and as he and I will be getting into in some depth tomorrow night, it may be a lot bigger than a lot of people are thinking. So you might want to tune in tomorrow night for what I think is going to be a really intriguing conversation. Before tonight's intriguing conversation, which of course is in a totally different direction, let me give you a couple of news points. Because as you know, a week or so ago, I had a really intriguing conversation with another citizen of Britain, Dr. Chandrawik Ramasinghe. And we were discussing the idea that this virus, this thing which has shut down the planet, has changed history, is perhaps the biggest thing in the last, what, at least maybe 100 years, if not longer, had much longer roots than most people looking at this um, would believe. Um, Because remember, it's Chandra's model that this, this virus could have come literally from space as part of the debris field behind a comet whose tail we crossed. And he bases this on, on literally decades of research matching orbital crossings of comets with the sudden eruption of global pandemics going back thousands of years past ancient Egypt and even beyond. So in that correlation, the idea that uh, COVID-19 appeared over the world as part of this set of things that happen every once in a while uh, is not that far out at all, provided, of course, you have linkage and real data. Well, if you look at uh, Radio with Pictures tonight, item number one. Now, again, remember, the way to get there is you go to our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com. You click on tonight's banner for our guest, Michael Feely, and that extraordinary, gorgeous view of Stonehenge with a real lightning bolt going down in the back. I've got to tell you, folks, it took me a while to find that one, but it kind of encapsulates what Michael and I are going to be discussing tonight. Anyway, click on that banner on the homepage. That will take you to Michael's guest page tonight. And then click on those fast links underneath to items, my items, Richard, That will take you down to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, according to a study just finished at the University of Cambridge, the coronavirus may have begun months earlier than we are thinking, and not in Wuhan, but somewhere toward the southern tier of China. And this is a very controversial finding. It has not yet been peer-reviewed, but I'm noticing an awful lot of these Academic papers are being rushed out to the larger peer review, which is us, those who are being affected all over the world. This, of course, would would kind of go along with the idea that it did not come from the bio lab there in Wuhan, and it was not released deliberately by, you know, Chinese military intelligence or U.S. military intelligence or any of the current. Uh, you know, very controversial theories that are being floated around the Internet. Well, that's a data point. What's really interesting is that if you go to item number two, there's a recent, like in the last couple of days, um, antibody study published by Stanford University, which suggests that the coronavirus in the United States is far more widespread than previously thought which comes up against conversations that Ron Gerbron and I have been having about did a lot of people have this early on last fall and not know it because, of course, they are um, uh, basically young and robust and it was like a cold or sniffles and some didn't even have symptoms. And he believes 
that he may have had it and not known what that it was a new iteration of a coronavirus. And remember, the flu season ostensibly peaked much earlier than a lot of people are normally expecting in the fall as opposed to the winter in 2019. And I had a spate of something really weird that I went through that I thought was, you know, the flu. Because delivery folks, even in this desert, come. And before we were all, you know, sheltering in place and social distancing and not, you know, uh, answering the door when the Amazon delivery comes, we, you know, would greet people normally. And I remember this guy, he was sneezing and coughing. And I told him to stay outside. And he said, oh, this is too heavy. I'll bring it in for you. And he did. And I did. And then, you know, a few days later, I came down with something. Fortunately, I recovered. Fortunately, Ron recovered. Fortunately, I mean, we even have another friend. Um, her name is Dana. And she was in the hospital the, turn of the first of the year with what she said was pneumonia. And I'm now thinking that maybe it was COVID-19. Fortunately, we're all fine. But if this is true, if we have a blood test, there should be antibodies signatures of our successfully fighting off the virus. Well, this study at Stanford is an antibody study showing that a very, very large percentage of the truly randomized um, list that they uh, went through to get their volunteers to, to do the study, and it was it, it, it's all discussed in this article, they may in fact have also had it, not realized it because they have antibodies. So is it in fact much more resident in the population of the planet that we in fact have hitherto believed in terms of contact tracing back to, you know, patient zero somewhere in China? That's what two sets of independent data from literally two separate continents is now seeming to indicate this is called science. And it's really interesting because, again, if this thing has been with us for much longer than that first report out of Wuhan, it means that it supports the um, Chandra model. And now what we would have to do is to kind of define the latitudes where this object or objects that brought this to us came in which, as you know, he was saying is between 30 and 50 north. Anyway, it's a really intriguing puzzle. Another piece is item number three. Remember, there used to be an aircraft carrier, or still is, called the uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is now docked at Guam. Um, they've had a major outbreak, and of the 4,800, give or take, crewmen and women on the ship, um, something like... Uh, Almost 800 have now been measured to carry the virus. What's really intriguing is that over 60% of those tested sailors turn out to have it, and they are symptom-free. They're what are called asymptomatic. Now, one of the um, uh, crewmen has died. There are several in the hospital whose symptoms are very severe, but most of these young, very healthy men and women, who of course are like a floating city in a confined space of an aircraft carrier, most of them who are carrying it are totally asymptomatic. I mean, this thing is diabolical. And the more we learn, the more we, and when I say we, I mean scientists, scientific community, the general public, the media, the, the White House, the people at the CDC, all are baffled by the wrinkles, the new facets of this thing, which are constantly turning up. If it was not for the horrible death count, this would be an extraordinary puzzle to be solved because it could portend um, future events if we are in fact dealing with a virus which did not come from a lab, is not been created down here on Earth, but in fact came from the solar system, who is to say in our model, remember we live in a 
previously inhabited solar system. And some of these things we think of as natural, called comets, are not in fact comets at all. They are in fact ancient, derelict, enormous, ancient, ancient, ancient spacecraft. And they're leaking because they're corroding, they're degrading, they're basically returning to interplanetary dust, eventually given enough time, as they're outgassing, are they in fact releasing a virus which was created in an incredible great interplanetary war millions of years ago? I mean, think of the, think of the scope that we may be dealing with, which is now causing a crisis and the reason the world and all these separate governments have all gotten together and agreed to make us all stay home is because they alone know where this really has come from. And they alone know how really serious it is. And because of this prohibition about the idea that there's any life anywhere beyond this planet, they cannot, they will not, they dare not tell us. Well, we're going to explore more of that tomorrow night with uh, Dr. Grossinger. Item number four. I keep looking for the silver lining in all this because, you know, the old joke about the kid that's getting a, a present for his birthday and his family is really kind of like out of Cinderella. And they throw open the door and they say, your present's in there. And he looks and his bedroom is full of horse shit. But because the guy's an optimist, he looks around and he says, well, there must be a pony in here somewhere. On that vein, in that vein, item number four uh, is really interesting because if you take a look at the planet as we're all kind of, you know, uh, station keeping in place, safely socially distancing at home, it's having incredible marvelous effects on the planet, on the biosphere. On the environment. And that article, which, uh, let me click on it, I forget where I found it. It's, I believe, from a, a magazine in India. Um, um, can't quite see what it is. Anyway, it's um, it shows a series of images taken around India and around other parts of the world showing comparisons between the environment, the air quality before everybody shut everything down and now and the results are striking what's that people would see this i mean there's there's uh, citizens of delhi for instance who talk about they have asthma and they can hardly breathe on a normal day and now they're going outside they're looking at crystal clear blue skies they're seeing mountains on the horizon from from indian cities that they've never seen in their lifetime because the pollution has been like Los Angeles in the 1950s and 60s. This could be a lesson for the world. And there could be a rising clamor like, why can't, when we all go back to work, why can't the environment be this every day? And of course, for that to happen, we have to transition off fossil fuels and you know natural gas and fuel oil and diesel and all the hydrocarbons that we're burning to maintain civilization and we need to transition to a alternatives renewables and b the actual physics-based torsion field energy technologies which also have been suppressed viciously for decade after decade after decade to make someone a buck or a ruble or a well fill in the term who knows this, as Richard and I are going to discuss tomorrow night, could be the presaging of something that's an extraordinarily positive transition in human affairs. And it may be that it's going to be up to all of us to kind of push the curve in that direction, as opposed to going back to situation normal. Last item. I mean, when I saw this, I just had to put it up tonight. There is, everyone, of course, is doing their television shows now from home, and they're using green screens, and it's so interesting to ski the, the quality of Skype calls improve radically. I mean, my complaint about Skype for years is that people haven't figured out how to light their home studios. 
You know, they use the screen light. They use it, it's been it's been terrible. It's so interesting to see the transition now. So everybody's home studio has been spiffed up. The lighting is professional. The background is appropriate. Some people use living rooms. Others use kitchens. Some use dens. There's a lot of books in the background, but the lighting is good, finally. Now, all they got to do is work on the sound, because the sound is still all over the map. I'm talking even professional news anchors on major networks that cannot seem to get the sound quite right. And the quality sometimes varies, which has to do, I presume, with Internet traffic and bandwidth and all that. Well, there's this guy, this weatherman in Indiana who is doing his weather forecast for Channel 14 uh, from home, except he's been joined by a partner. So if you look on item number five, his cat Betty has become a partner in his weathercasts. And I mean, you really want to read the story and play the videos because this cat is so cool and so obviously knows exactly what is going on, he said as a former cat person. How do we know this? Well, just check out that picture. This is John, who is the weatherman, holding Betty, and in front of the map, which is projected on the green screen electronically in the in the camera behind him. And Betty is looking, well, he says that she's very high-strung and nervous, obviously dripping with irony. What I found interesting is because a lot of people are writing in, because he's got a whole Facebook page now devoted to his duo with Betty the cat, they're all wondering if this cat is aware of her celebrity. She's getting fan mail. You know, people are tuning in. He even says it during the broadcast. Well, I know you're just tuning in to see the cat, but it's going to be cold out there tonight. You know, you might want to pay attention to the weather. And if you take a look at that picture, it's obvious that Betty knows exactly what's going on. Because while John is holding her and giving her belly rubs and trying to call attention to the weather on the screen behind him, where is Betty looking? Is she looking adoringly at her daddy? No. She's looking directly at the camera and all the people, her subjects, tuning in. Our guest this morning is Michael Feely. And to give you a quick overview, Michael is a former UK police officer and now ancient codebreaker who has authored seven books and several additional ebooks on various esoteric subjects, has also been a speaker at various public and international conferences, and is a global radio person, a magazine article writer, and a I'm sorry, I'll do that again, a frequent social media blogger. Michael is currently adopting his work to cater to a younger audience and will soon have a series of children's books to reach out to the next generation and teach many of the truths that are not being taught elsewhere. Michael's appeared on Edge Media TV, The Moore Show, has been featured on Straw Man, The Nature of the Cage, and L Street Studios Independent Documentary, and he's also appeared on uh, the largest radio show that's opposite ours, Coast to Coast AM, with George, George Norrie, and uh, the, the sequence, the follow-on to Art's radio show, Art Bell, uh, Midnight in the Desert. He has had, and we're going to get into this this morning, multiple UFO experiences. He has experienced consciousness entanglements, including remote viewing time travel, and has personally witnessed dimensional portals opening up, emanating from very unorthodox craft. Well, I want to save time to talk to Michael, so instead of reading the rest of the bio, you can go to the other side of midnight, scroll down to the bottom, there is his bio. With that, Welcome, Michael Feely, to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, as my grandmother said, it's nice to, uh, to have you on. Um, I want to start out with a very basic question. What time in your life did you look around and say, they're not telling us the truth? Probably from about the age of six or seven, mm. when... Yes, when I used to 
just sit there. I was a very, very shy, very quiet, very in the shadow, isolated child. And I used to sit there at the age of six and seven and have what I now now believe to be sort of adult conversations with myself. And just thinking how the world, even at that age, doesn't make sense. It, it just doesn't make sense. And how I always felt different as if I didn't belong. And I used to watch famous movies such as the, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And even at the age of six and seven, I was questioning, is this possible? Is there a deeper meaning? Can can a man part the Red Sea? Mm-hmm. So I, I used to have these, these great adult conversations at the age of six and seven with myself. And I, and I think I realised at that age that there was something amiss, that there was something not right, uh, which, of course, now has been confirmed and verified by what I've now found out uh, in later life. Well, you did not take a direct line from those early ideas to to what you're doing now. You kind of made a detour. How the heck did a quiet, shy, intellectual, introverted kid become a cop? Well, it sort of happened in, in my teenage years. And when you start thinking about careers at high school and different things, my it seemed to be in my blood. It seemed to be a, a passion. And that passion lived all through my teenage years until I was of adult age and I was old enough to apply. Was, was, it was, took, when you said passion, you mean you liked figuring out puzzles, weird things, mysteries? I, I, I guess I did. And I also had a passion of of helping people and protecting people ah. and, you know, all, all the things that, that sort of go with that sort of protector energy. And, and I wanted to do that and I wanted to be there for, for people at their point of need, which which really may sound like a cliche, but it really was a, a sort of true feeling. And because it was such a difficult occupation to actually get into, it probably took me about nine or ten years wow. to, actually, to, to actually get in, in, into the force. And... So, so you went to uh, high school, we call it over here, and then did you go to college? No, I didn't. Uh, my education or state education ended at high school. So I, I left high school and did various various jobs. I always knew that when I become determined to do something, then there is only one outcome. And I, I, would, I did many different jobs just to bridge the gap. And I always knew that one day I would fulfill my ambition hmm. and really the the, the police I, I i now deem that my first marriage because i really really was married to that career and i was there in in england's two largest cities and i policed the front line uh, routine patrol dealing with emergency calls non-emergency calls different various of crimes being first on scene at hostage situations and homicides and i was there for 17 years all in all wow but i, but I never ever expected to leave and if somebody had told me during my career that after 17 years I would be leaving and walking out then I probably would have sectioned them into an asylum because that was never ever going to happen so it took me a long long time to get into that career but once I did then of course I'd fulfilled that ambition and as far as I was concerned I was going to be there for life okay big question coming up <clears throat> what made you leave well Approaching around about 2009, and, and it, it began to happen. When, when I met my wife, who was also a police officer as well, uh, we met in 2006, and our relationship sort of blossomed because we, we, were, we were on the same team uh, at the same police station. And over the, the coming months, that relationship blossomed. Now, my wife had had lots and lots of paranormal things happen to her throughout her life from early childhood all the way through to uh, adult life. Now, when my wife and I got together, something seemingly happened. And from that point, I also began to experience lots of things and we began to experience lots of things together. Okay, wait, wait, wait. She had paranormal experiences growing up. Did you? Not that I can remember. But ah. following various messages that have been transmitted to me in various mediums, I have been told that from a very, very early age, I was chosen to do what I'm doing now. Mm. So even though have, I can't... Have, have you thought of uh, maybe being hypnotically regressed to see if you did have some 
events happen, but you've kind of closed them off, put them behind a door in a closet, that kind of thing? I have considered it. That the, the problem with my mind is it's the same when people say to me, do you do meditations? The, the problem with my mind is because I can't relax it enough sufficiently to enter into these places. So if somebody's trying to hypnotize me, mm. there'd, be a, there'd, be a, there'd be a certain part of me that would be fighting that hypnosis. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. There have been people over the years, because of course you're familiar with the research that I've been doing, and they've said, don't you want to know that you've been contacted by aliens and they told you all this stuff? And I said, no, I want to figure it out myself. <clears throat> is there is there part of that, Michael, that you'd rather do it yourself than kind of open a floodgate that is maybe not you? Well, it is actually uh, both of those things for, for me, really. Uh, I, I do some, sometimes get downloads of information that fit pieces to this, this gigantic jigsaw. I have been told that a lot of the information that I do present is channeled to me, and, and I do know that to be true because I can actually feel the exact point that that information comes in. Uh, some, sometimes I, I do have that ambition because I want to know. I want to know what what these biblical scriptures really mean, what these monoliths and monuments around the world are really telling us. I, I really, really want to know what is not being taught. It is that sort of innate, again, that, that innate sort of passion of mine to know and to make all of these connections as to, as to what are what are these ancient cultures and beyond really telling us and what is the message that they've left for us and how can that really enhance our sort of reality, our experience here in, the, in this third dimensional frequency. So for me, it's a real passion to want to know and yes, to piece it together because when, when the pieces do fit together, the, the thrill and the excitement and, and the absolute eureka moments that, that gives is almost like a drug. It's like a chemical fix. So I really do have that passion to, to want to know and to work it out with that 17 years of investigative mind, and investigative training, piecing mm. evidence together, get, get going to the scene of a crime. Now that evidence speaks. That evidence is, is indisputable. Now, regardless of what eyewitnesses are telling you, that sometimes is different to the genetic evidence or different evidence that are presented to you. And that, and that's when you, when you can start to read this evidence and, and this deeper meaning, this deeper evidence, it speaks a language to you. And that really is part of my makeup, my, part of my actual DNA, part of my genetics, because my genetic line is Irish kings and pharaohs of Egypt. So I have this genetic line that has come through this knowledge base that is still inside my DNA. Hmm. Now, obviously, you can't do the research to confirm that. That's part of what comes from, as you termed it a moment ago, these channelings? Now, the, the actual uh, genetic line has, has been traced. So ah. my, my genetic line goes back to the, the Celtic kings of, uh, of ancient Ireland. Now, when you look at my, my family origin it was then traceable that those Irish kings are related to Ramesses II, How the pharaoh of Egypt. So therefore, my, my genetic line, uh, and again, uh, there's real, real two, two deep passions of mine, which is Egypt and religion. Mm. And I tell you, hold it there. We're at the, at the bottom of the hour. We'll pick this right back up because it's not very often that one of my guests actually can trace his lineage to kings and royalty and other cultures and ancient times. Hmm. My guest this morning is Michael Feely, former uh, police officer in the British Isles in the United Kingdom. I believe when he said two major cities that one of them had to have been London. We'll check that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, April 18th, The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning, all the way from England by means of the Internet. I mean, isn't it, isn't it interesting that we have the Internet to fall back on just when we've needed it? Is that a coincidence or is that timing? Again, we're going to get into the depths of this tomorrow night. Tonight... My guest, Michael Feely, former U.K. police officer, who now we know can trace his lineage genetically back to the royalty of kings. I mean, Michael, that's an extraordinary uh, statement to be able to make and back up with real science. What prompted you to kind of wonder, how far back does do I go? Well, actually, it was my uh, uncle that uh, a number of years ago, uh, went and actually did an, an official genetic trace of, of my family name. And my family surname means chess player. Feely means chess player. And he actually traced it all the way back to the Hedeman Kings of, of Celtic Island. And we've actually got a, a, an official scroll at my house now that, that obviously traces that back to those kings. Now, when you look at their lineage, again, it goes back to ancient Egypt, which for me... Uh, because my passion of Egypt is so strong, and it was so strong before I even realised this fact. You know, it's it sort of all these synchronicities that that, that come together uh, that you know you know to be true. And when you know, some sometimes in in sleep states, I will get mathematical sequences come come in my head that I have to look into the next day. One of them was the square root of nine three seven. When you look into the square root of nine three seven. It takes you back to the ancient mystery schools of ancient Egypt through uh, the hexagram, the geometric shape of the hexagram, which is wisdom, which then brings you to the bumblebee and the honeycomb, which then brings you to the bra, mari, breath techniques. Uh, so we, we, we have all of this, the, these synchronicities that, that occur in my life as well, both in a waking state and a dream state. Let me just follow this up. Uh, when you say hexagram, are you talking about a six-sided geometric figure? Yes. Yeah, uh, which is obviously in, in nature is the the honeycomb of the bee. Oh the my quite... gosh, you have a treat in store for you in the next thirty seconds. Because hexagonal geometry is basically two intertwined three-dimensional tetrahedra in two dimensions, a flat plane, and the tetrahedra are part of an internal energy hyperdimensional connection between planetary processes on Earth and higher dimensional realms. So that hexagram geometric pattern in 2D is the key to everything we're going to be talking about tonight in terms of a real reproducible physics. Absolutely. And and that is also... uh, Applicable to the 19.5 degree effect as well. You got it. <laughs> yes. So please continue. So yes, so it was it was traced all the way back to, to Irish kings. Uh, 
in, in my dream state, I get, as I say, mathematical sequences. I get geometric shapes. The last one was two wavy lines, which turned out to be uh, relating to topology, which is all to do with the properties of, of geometric objects. So it's all geometric. It's all mathematical. It's all the language of the universe because the creator is a mathematician. And even, you know, the likes of Gal Galileo said that, that, that mathematics is, is the language in which God route into the universe you know pythagoras all his number mm. so the, these these great scientists of the past knew that mathematics which obviously is also a branch of geometry as well is the the, the universal constant it is the universal language now when you look into geometry it's really i found a a map a universal map where you can actually give your position and your location and when you look into the mathematics that is written into the ancient monuments, which give their exact location, but also give the location of other monuments, including Sidonian City, you realize that it's really a gigantic navigation system. Hmm. That is, well, let, that me, is let, me, let me come back to it for, in, in a minute. I want to ask back to your growing up. You say you get these downloads in dreams, but you didn't have any paranormal experiences up until the time that you met your wife, right? To, to my conscious knowledge, no, other than the, the the deep and meaningful thoughts that there was something something more okay. to to reality. Okay, here's 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 the real question: How long have you been having these? We'll call them download dreams. Are they recent? Did they start when you left the force and began looking at ancient mysteries and monuments and megaliths and geometry in them, or have these dreams been with you for for decades? but you didn't understand their meaning until relatively recently. The, the dreams and the messages really uh, have started probably since 2009. Ah. 2009, 2009 is, is what, even though I was seeing lots and lots of unorthodox things in the skies, both day and night, leading up to 2009, 2009 was really what I class as my awakening. And I say it was my awakening because that was the consciousness time travel which i went back to the scene of a crime that little did i realize at the time was actually 159 years previous okay okay so, let, 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 let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves because if we're going to do this where the audience can follow we have to be rigorously metonymic we have to go from a to b to c otherwise i'll get lost okay so um when you met your wife you were talking before the break that you never imagined you would leave the force but somehow that meeting with, I would presume we would call her your soulmate, would that be too much? No, that, that is certainly uh, a concept that, that, that we thought of and has been mentioned to us. Uh, whatever the soulmate may be, there okay. is certainly a energetic, deeper connection between us. Okay. So that triggered a major change in your life and career and professionalism and all that. Talk about that transition. Okay. Well, initially, uh, obviously meeting someone and, and, and entering into a relationship, it made me realize there was actually more to life than just a career. So that was really the first taking sort of the first diversion away from, from that first marriage. And then there's, there's quite a bit of disillusion coming into it as well for me, where, you know, politics was, was taking a tight grip and, the service was going in the direction that I didn't agree with. So this, this was causing sort of an internal turmoil inside me. And my energies were not matching this particular occupation anymore. When you couple that with all of a sudden, in the space of a very, very short time, literally each day, each night, each week, each month, I was seeing something unusual or experienced firsthand something unusual every single day. And this was making my, my awareness expand. And it was making me realize that what I thought as a child is actually now true. And I was sort of piecing all this together. And, and there, there wasn't a day that went by that something wouldn't occur, something wouldn't happen to me. And I'd be with my wife and things would happen. I'd be with my wife and friends and things would happen and we'd all see the same thing. I'd be by myself and things would happen. It, 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 just, it just seemed that wherever I was at that particular time, it was timed to happen. And regardless of what I was doing, 
where I was, what I intended to do. This was always timed to happen at this particular moment. And that's really what kicked me out of, of my career. So this was kind of like a, a wake-up call, literally. It was like, hey, Michael, Michael, you're supposed to be doing this. Remember? This. Well, th that's exactly what, what I feel it was. And it was such a... Well, it was actually a traumatic wake-up call that oh. I, couldn't actually, I couldn't actually sleep with the light off in my bedroom for six months because, bear in mind, you know, I'd, I'd seen the, the, the worst of humanity. I'd had guns pointed at oh me. Oh, my God, people. yeah. I mean, for I, 17 I, I, years I on the force, you must have gone through extraordinary experiences that most of us only see on television. Exactly, but I'd never felt fear until my awakening. Oh. Uh, and it was extremely traumatic. Okay. You know what's coming. Talk about that transitional moment when something happened and Michael says, oh, oh. Okay, well, the, the, the story in, in the shortest terms that I can is... Hey, we have three hours. Come on. Don't... Oh, don't, you know. right. <laughs> in that case, as I say, um, uh, my, my wife, Sarah, when, when she was a child, she used to live in... Birmingham, which is again England's second city, and where her house was situated was on Victorian England farmland. Now, by Victorian England, it is a period of time in between 1837 and 1901, so that was classed as Queen Victoria's Victorian England. Mm. And her house, her, her estate, was situated on Victorian farmland. Now, even as a child, her house was was nicknamed the haunted house of the street. Because there were so many things that would happen, she would see hands coming out of walls. Oh, uh, there'd be there'd be young children, uh, her cousins, her friends would 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 come over. They'd go upstairs in the bedroom and play by themselves. But they'd come downstairs and say, "Can you tell that little girl that I don't want to play with her anymore?" <laughs> but, there, but, there, but there was no one there. And this this sort of can so she had over. imaginary friends that weren't imaginary. Well, she well she had imaginary friends that other people would see. So uh, and and without knowledge of her imaginary friends, so it's it's all of these different people who were seeing the same thing, uh, and and diff different things would would keep occurring in this house in in, in this thing. Now, when I think, sort of in her her early twenties, she went to see a friend of the family who was a medium, and this medium said that there's a girl that's around you that looks remarkably like you, and her name is Sarah Jensen. And this girl wants you to look into her death because she's been taken by the hands of another. Now, this was her, her words, the hands of another. Mm. And she wanted my wife to look in, into her, her death, her passing. Now, of course, she, she didn't at that time. But when my wife and I came together, then I inherited this energy, this energy in the quantum field. I inherited this into my energy field. And there'd be lots and lots of strange things happening. Wait, 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 wait. Back up. Energy, quantum field. In other words, when you guys got together and literally merged psychically, you began to, what, experience overlap with her experience and it opened something in you? It did, and it, it was it certainly was overlapped because we were experiencing the same things together at the same time, hmm. seeing the same things. So it was it was certainly as, as if so. She was like a trigger one. to a whole. Se I hate this term paranormal because if it's happening, it can't be para. It's got to be real. So she was a catalyst to open a part of you that you'd closed down for decades. I guess she certainly was. Uh, and it was it was at this point that we we connected energetically, psychically, whatever it that, that all this began to happen. Now, when when as I say when when we got together, then she told me all about the story. I inherited it. There'd be lots and lots of strange things happening. Poltergeist activity in my house. There'd be six foot double glass windows shattering from the inside of the house. Um. There was there, there were scenarios where I could actually feel as if someone was trying to possess my physical body. There was lots and lots of other instances of negativity where it was causing conflict between the wife and I, which I'll get into at the moment because we now know what that is. But we, my wife and I had a private conversation because we, we both went to see the same medium and, and the medium said that this character is still around and she still wants you to look into her, her death. This is the 20-year-old so, girl who had been murdered. 
Well, she actually turned out to be 14 when she when she was murdered. 14. Uh, one four. 14. 14. Okay. One four, four, 14, a teenage girl. Uh, all of these things we found out subsequently, but not at the time. And, and she, hang on, she hang still on. When, 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 she, when she at first, your wife, your future wife at first encountered this being, this contact, and this 14-year-old girl we now know said she had been, what was the term used, at the hands of another? Yep, she'd been taken by the hands of another. And that, that sounds that like that being strangled? Very close, very close. And basically, uh, she wanted us both to look into our death, and, and, and my wife and I decided, okay, let's look into this. But we didn't have a date. We didn't have a, a time. So we decided that because this, this girl had obviously been around my wife's house. I was going to say, was she an occupant of the house at some point? Exactly, because this was land where it turned out that oh. she used to live and in, in Victorian England. And because this, this particular estate was built around about the Second World War, we decided to go back to around about the 1940s. And because we had a name, because we had an area, we actually went to our central library and we spent the whole of the day looking at every death that had been registered in the whole of England, Ireland, Wales, oh Scotland, God. under that, that name that we had, Sarah Jensen, but we couldn't find anything. So we had a private meal, a Sunday lunch, and we thought it was a private conversation <laughs> where, where we decided that, look, we're not getting any, anywhere with this. We spend the whole day. We, we can't find anything of that name. It's either wrong. What was the or, name? It was Sarah Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N. And we couldn't find anything, so we decided that we're going to call it quits. It's sort of the end of the investigation, really. From that point on, that's when things start to get dirty. And as I say, these windows would be smashing, the possession would happen. We'd have radiation systems in the house that would go freezing cold. There'd be an energy in the house that made us feel very, very uncomfortable. Now, on it, it was it was the 8th of February. Now, this is the house that's on the ancient Victorian land, right? Where this Jensen person lived. No, that was my wife's childhood home. Oh, uh, so this, this is, is your new home. This is this is our new home that we moved ah. into. Uh, I think about 2008, so a year before the the, the 2009 awakening. So this had actually followed us, follows us, and wherever we we're going to go, this this would have followed us there because this girl was never attached to the both of us. But it gets a little more complicated in, in a moment. But it was the the 8th of February 2009 in our time, and it was particularly particularly bad. It, it, there was a bad bad feeling. Uh, we, we'd, we'd, we'd smell flowers, which don't seem to, to appear bad, but there was a wasp, uh, a wasp of flowers in the house. There were radiation systems going off. There was a real dark energy that was making us feel. What do you mean radiation systems? I don't get it. Uh, central heating. You know, when you have like radiation oh, okay, in the house okay. that, uh, mean, that radiates. You mean, you, mean, you mean the furnace? The f well, yes, uh, but it's like a radiation system, uh, and that they would go freezing cold it's instantly. Just, it's like... Is this like an old-fashioned hot water radiator? It's yes, but it's more a more modern version. So you have the the, the pipes coming from the radiator, the boiler, which then radiates uh, metal panels on on the. Oh, the I see, I the see. So the, these things were going freezing cold in an instant. There was this eerie, oh, radical eerie entropy changes. Wow. Yeah, and it, it really was noticeable. It was freezing noticeable, and th there was this there's this eerie feeling that actually made us leave the house and, and this was the Sunday evening of the eighth of February two thousand and nine. Where was the house located? It was it was located probably twenty five minutes from where the original house was. So it wasn't a great deal of distance. Uh it was again just outside Birmingham and my wife's childhood house was actually in Birmingham, which is right in the in central England, in the middle of the country. Okay. So we had to leave our house and we went to my mother-in-law's house. She was aware of this story from my wife's childhood and she grew up with it. And that there was, a, you know, people in the street had also heard a girl who had supposedly died of, of Val's disease, a uh, disease from rat urine. So, so the, 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 there was actually talk in, in that time of, of, of this family, of this girl. So we actually leave, left, leave the house and we went to the mother-in-law's house. Now it's about 1.30 in the morning, which was now Monday the 9th of February, 
the family went to, to bed and, and my wife and I went to bed and, and we, we slept in a downstairs sort of garage garage conversion. And it was on the ground floor of, of the mother-in-law's house, which again was probably 15 minutes away from the original house. So all, all of this is geographically fairly close. Mm. And 1.30 in the morning, that morning, we went to bed. We switched the lights off. We went to sleep. Uh, I'd asked the, the psychic medium who had told us about this 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 girl. She was going to come the next the next morning and help us uh, in, in whatever way she could. So we just had to sit the night out, or so we thought. <laughs> now, you know, what what can happen? She, we'd arranged to meet this psychic medium at 10 a.m. It was now 1.30 in the morning. You know, what can happen in, in just a few hours? Well, it was to change my life because at about 3.30 that morning, which again was still Monday the 9th of February 2009, I vividly and even now remember being in a old wooden bedroom. And I was on what I believe to be one side of the room, maybe on a bed. And I was looking, it wasn't particularly a large area, maybe 10 feet in front of me, there was a window. And that window was covered by blue curtains. At that particular point, there was a wooden door in the right-hand corner of the room, which began to open. As the door opened, the curtains began to move with the draft from the door. And at that point, I heard a young girl's voice say, here he is. This was her stepfather who entered the room, who used to abuse her. And on this particular morning, which turned out to be 159 years previously in the year 1850, it actually smothered her to keep her quiet and accidentally suffocated her. Mm. I, I was actually witnessing her last moments of life. And I wasn't doing that physically because physically I was in the year 2009 in Birmingham in England. But Now, remember, hang on a sec, Michael. Were you having like a lucid dream or were you sound asleep and I'm going to use the wrong term here, your astral body, whatever, was witnessing 159 years before this event. In other words, how how did you how did you realize what you were seeing was not just a dream? Because the the events leading up to it, the events, so the context, the, dream, the context, and the way in which when I came back to my reality, to my physical body, how I was absolutely screaming. Oh, in tra traumatic hysterics uh, to, to, to such an extent that it caused a change of reaction to my wife, who also began to scream now, wait, wait, hysterically. Wait, wait, wait. You're this hardened police officer. You're watching a 14-year-old girl being accidentally killed, not murdered, just accidentally killed, and it terrified you? Why? It, because I was feeling the emotions that she was going for. Oh, so you were so linked and in synchronization. It was like you were being killed. I was being killed, but the end result was different because I was still alive. Wow. Talk about a mind and, meld. Exactly. And the, 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 the trauma, we, we, we got straight up. We, we obviously couldn't sleep. Huh? Uh, we, we, we got up. We, we, we just pondered, we just paced around the, the house until family got up. We told family what had happened they began to start feeling symptoms of what we were feeling. Uh, the psychic medium who had agreed to help us called us and said, sorry, I can't help you anymore. I basically said, yes, you are. I'm coming to get, I'm, I'm coming to get you now. So we, we probably drove about 30, 40 minutes to go and get her. She was on her doorstep. She said that she'd been a psychic medium for a number of years, but this is the first time that she'd been kicked out of her own house. She'd had washing machines lift off the ground. She'd oh, had my God. She'd had, she'd had coffee cups. She put a coffee cup down in the kitchen, and when she went to retrieve it to have the drink of coffee, the cup had been moved, and a silver spoon had actually been put inside the cup. She was having all of these things that were trying to prevent her from helping us. Hmm. There's a, there's and, a term for that. Uh, oh, my friend David Wilcock calls it negative greeting. <laughs> it sounds to me like it's negative greeting in space. <laughs> It, it certainly was a negative gre uh, greeting, and as I say, it, 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 she said it's the first time that she's ever been kicked out of her own house by, by what was going on. Now, when she got to our house, this is when 
the, the story was then really revealed in its entirety to us. And the, the girl was present. We felt her presence. She tells us what had happened. What we didn't realise until that point is we also had the assailant in our energy field as well. I was just going to ask you, who was behind throwing the coffee cups and all that in the medium's house? Was it the bad guy or the girl desperately needing to reach out to, for somebody to do something? Well, the, the negative things were the bad guy. This was John Berkshire, mm-hmm. and it was her sort of stepfather. Now, he was also in our energy field. He was the one who was shattering windows in my house. He was the one that was trying to actually split up my wife and I through through negativity, through creating conflict, because he wanted this story to remain hidden. Why? Because I mean, he's he been dead 150-some years. Why should he give a damn? Because he still wanted the story kept quiet. Now, in, in his reality, in his quantum field, in his, his quantum existence, his quantum fingerprint, it's still happening. Because what in the what, quantum what world, do you mean? Because in the quantum world, time is infinite. There is no separation between past, now, and future. So everything is happening is one continuous snapshot. So for me, it's already happened so and I don't think somebody he, else's time. Is event. he kind of caught in a time loop? In, in in his reality, in his quantum reality, yes, he's still in his time. This is still happening for him then. But if you intervened, if you figured it out, if you released her somehow, we'll get to that in a minute, wouldn't that release him too? He would no longer be in literally hell? Well, he was released eventually, but the amount of resistance that he, that he put up the, the psychic medium was ill for six months. Oh my! He was that he was that determined not to go, and but so was she. She didn't want to go either. This uh, is the fourteen-year-old victim. This is the fourteen-year-old victim, and the, there's there's another twist to the story because she did eventually go, and he did eventually go, but he, he did fight. And as I say, the, the the medium was physically ill for six months. But as as, as this girl was leaving after she told the story, she said. Thank you. I'm sorry. My favourite colours are pink and lilac. And we thought, well, that's a bit strange. What what relevance is that? A couple of days later, my wife and I had gone out for the day. We came back home, and there was a pink and lilac artificial flower that had been left in in the house for us. Oh my! And the, and we have that. It's a physical artificial pink and lilac flower, which were her favourite colours. Fascinating. Okay, we are coming to the top of the hour. It's amazing, really, Michael. This is an amazing story which we shall return to. Um, My guest this morning is Michael Feely, former police officer in the royal service of Her Majesty. What a story. But don't go away, because it gets better. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. (laughs) 